we will start a new series today, mini-series that I'll tell you about in just a bit. But before we do, I wanted to reiterate some of what you heard in the announcements. They're in your program, but I want to underscore a few of them. In that middle panel of your program at the top, the family bowling event, that's this coming Saturday. So if you don't have tickets for that as yet, you should get those today. Wednesday would be the final day, but preferably don't wait until Wednesday. You see it's 1230 to 230 and the cost there. You can get those before you leave today at the Resource Center, which is out the back door and just across the, uh, the hall. And then our uh, baptism and our newcomers' uh, brunches. I wanted to point those out. Baptism is uh, within a month now, just a few weeks away. If you have not been baptized, Jesus commands that of all those who profess his name. And that means if you have not been dunked in water uh, to symbolize the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, then you've not been baptized as the Bible describes, and Jesus requires that. So if that is you, then let's talk about that. Let's talk about what uh, the requirements are in order to participate, but let's do so quickly because March 8th is, is coming soon. And then on Saturday the 21st, 10 a.m. to about noon, uh, we will have the next Newcomers Brunch at our house. And if you've never been to one of the brunches, we would love to have you come. And to facilitate that, you can register at the Information Center and they will give you, they have invitations. Uh, the last couple of weeks, they, they haven't had the invitations, but they do now. And uh, if you signed up uh, in the past couple of weeks, go and get your invitation because it has our address and phone number and all of that on it. Uh, and if you haven't, please do. If you've never been, we would love to have you and love to be able to use that uh, avenue to get to know you a bit better. And then that same day in the evening is the Living Last Supper. And that's going to be this uh, dramatic presentation of the Last Supper uh, that we're going to have here uh, for three weeks, the uh, 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd uh, potential. Well, this room is going to be different for those three Sundays because there's going to be a stage on that end. And uh, either one of those mornings, the 22nd, or perhaps all three, the orientation of this room is going to be completely changed with the seats facing that way. So there's a special stage that's being made for that. A lot of work is going into it. Uh, those who are going to be acting in the drama are doing a lot of work for that. And I have heard that it is, is excellent. And uh, so I look forward to that. And you should too. And use it as an avenue to invite somebody because they will see and uh, hear the gospel through that uh, presentation. So mark your calendars for those items. Get your tickets for bowling today. Uh, see me or get a baptism application for baptism and then, um, and then the Living Last Supper on the evenings of the 21st and 22nd. Mark that on your calendars. All right, if you have a Bible, if you would turn to 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, and we will look at 2 Timothy 3 in, in just a bit. But for the next few weeks, while we are between major series, I want to do one called, the title of which is The Story of Your Life. And I'll explain why I'm doing it and why we call it that in a bit. The reason that I want to take a few weeks to do this series, The Story of Your Life, is because of my concern for many years about the relative lack of change that takes place over years in the life of the typical professing Christian that a person can go to church for many years, can learn the lingo of evangelical Christianity, and yet if you knew that person 10 years ago and you look at them then 
10 years later, there's not a whole lot of difference. There's not a whole lot of change that has taken place. And that's of great concern to me because the Bible teaches that change, spiritual change, is to be a constant in the life of God's people. So if change is not occurring, then that ought to be a concern for us as individuals. It ought to be a concern for us as churches and of church leaders. Now, why is that? Why is it the case that change doesn't occur more often than it does in the lives of God's people? Well, you could give a lot of reasons for that. One is that many think that change is unnecessary. Uh, And it's unnecessary because all that's really necessary is that you've made a profession of faith, folks think. So that if I've made a profession of faith, if I have a time, a date written in the front of my Bible, let's say, that says, on this date, I prayed the prayer and trusted Jesus as Savior, then I'm good to go. Then what's all, I'm going to heaven, and heaven will be a massive change. You know, I'll go from what I am now to a glorified body and all that. So the change will all take place in this one massive transformation. But in the meantime, I'm just biding my time. Now, I want to bide my time in the best way possible. So I don't want to hang around with derelicts. Church people are pretty nice. I came across CBC. Bagels and coffee? Come on. My kids, if I have kids, my kids hang around with kids who are not doing drugs. They do activities with the youth group. I mean, what a great thing. So I want to be a part of that. Why, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? That's the way I see it. And so I I enjoy coming. I enjoy the people. And uh, But as far as me changing, look, I am what I am. So some people have the idea that change is unnecessary in the Christian life. They've gotten this idea that heaven is what matters. And if I've punched my ticket by praying the prayer, then I'm going to heaven. The change thing is optional at best. And another reason that people don't change is because they think change is impossible. It's unnecessary, but they also, many people, have determined it's impossible. When we use phrases like, you can't teach an old dog what? New tricks, right? So, if I'm an old dog, don't try to teach me new tricks. I'm, I'm set in what? Set in my ways. And if we're married, <laughs> you've got a couple of old dogs who are set in their ways. And so they just have an existence together, but not really a marriage. So some people think it's unnecessary, I'm going to heaven. Some people think it's impossible. And all of that could not be further from the truth of what New Testament Christianity is supposed to be about. On a regular basis, dear friends, you and I are supposed to be engaged in the change process. And to give, to give some substance to that change process, you've heard me say that a, a major motif in the Bible that many people overlook, I mean, it's, it's quite stark in how it's presented, I think, but many people overlook it. In fact, many of you have come to me and said, I never realized that. But a major motif of the Bible is this, that God started us out by making us, 
to reflect him back to him. And you've heard me call that, that we were made to be mirrors to reflect God back to God. The Bible's phrase for that is we were made in the image of God. So God makes us in his image to be like him. To be like him in our moral thinking and talking and doing. We're to think and talk and act like God. God made us to do that. So that was God's original design. And he made one among his creatures, humanity, to reflect his image. And yet the image has been marred. The image has been distorted. The image is broken. The mirrors are cracked because of the entrance of sin. So for two chapters, we get to enjoy uh, this status of being made in the image of God and fellowship with God, reflecting him back to him perfectly. But then you come to chapter 3 in Genesis and the first man and woman sin, and as a result, the image is marred. Now, the image is still there, as we will see, but it's marred, it's distorted. But God's plan is for that image to be restored. And the Bible has 66 books, and the first and the 66th are like bookends. Revelation tells us how it is designed to be, or excuse me, Genesis tells us how it's designed to be, and Revelation tells us about how God is going to restore it to be that way. So at the beginning, we were to reflect God back to God. At the end, the Bible teaches, we will be fully in his image and reflect him back to him. The mirrors will be completely repaired, but in the meantime, there is this change process. Now, you all know, most of you know, that the Bible says what I just said, that we were made to reflect God, that we were made in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 say that very thing. And then when you get to the end, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3, 2, that when we see him, we will, does anybody remember? When we see him, we will be like him. So when we see him, says John in 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, we will be like him. We will have been restored to what we were made to be. So you start with that, and the Bible's story and his story ends with that, that we will achieve, God will achieve his original goal for humanity, that I will have a people who mirror me back to me. And John says, when we see him, we, we will be like him. John goes on to say, when we see him, we will be like him, for because we shall see him as he is. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the causal relationship between those phrases. You probably haven't. In 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we will be like him. We will be like him because we will see him. Now, how does seeing him have a relationship to being like him. Here's how. The Bible says, without holiness, no one will see God. So how do I know that I'll be like him when I see him? Because that's the only way to see him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so God began with us reflecting him back to him, and God is going to end with us reflecting him back to him. We are going to be like him. But in between, 
How much does God care about us becoming like him? Well, Romans 8 and verse 29 says that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. So this plan of God that he began to execute in the garden with the creation of the first man and woman made in his image, but this plan has been predestined to have a people who are conformed to the image of his son. So we were made that way, we will ultimately be that way if we belong to him, but in between we're to be becoming that way, being conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the old man and the new man. Many of you have read that. Put off the old man, put on the new man. The old man is the regenerated, saved person. This different person now that I'm to be after having come to Christ, the new man. But the new man in verse 24 of Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.24, says the new man is made to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. Made to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. All right, so everybody got the big picture now? (laughs) This is this motif of the Bible. God makes us to be in his image. God is going to have us fully restored into that image. When we see him, we will be like him. And in the meantime, we are to be becoming like him. Conform to the image of Jesus. The new man is to be made like him in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if that's true, if God is engaged in salvation, in this reclamation and restoration project of broken mirrors that are being restored into the image of Christ, if that's the case, then it means that the Bible is about change throughout. And for a Christian to say, I'm opting out of the change process, is completely then foreign to God's purpose and plan for his people. So you can see, I guess, why then I would be dismayed over years now of ministry, growing up in church my, literally my entire life, and seeing so little change happen among God's people. And hear so many people voice in various ways, I am what I am, deal with it. And voice to their spouses, you know, I've got my ways, you got your ways, we'll just have to figure it out. Now I had you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to show you that the Bible is a book about change. I'll start in verse 10, 2 Timothy 3. You, that is, you, Timothy, to whom Paul, who wrote this, is writing, you know all about my teaching, my way of life and my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Now let me stop there. The one who wrote this, Paul, some of you know his story. Saul of Tarsus converted on the road to Damascus 
on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. <laughs> and he has an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. And he is miraculously converted. He is changed. And this is now Paul the Apostle, that man writing, and he's saying, you know all about my life. Well, as, as you look at what he describes as his life, this is a complete 180 in this guy's life. He's, been, he's clearly been changed. Middle of verse 11, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me stop there. So who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Don't raise your hand, but if you profess Jesus, that should be you. And he's saying that this goes with living a godly life. Because the rest of the world ain't. If you are, then you'll be different. And the world, for all of its freedom of expression, hates somebody who's morally different. It claims we love freedom of expression, but in fact, if you are morally different and you by your light expose the deeds of darkness, look out. So you will be persecuted if, as Christians do, you pursue a godly life. 13, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and verse 15, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, there's a book, the Holy Scriptures, that is so much about this issue of change that you, Timothy, have been changed by it and others are changed by it in what we call salvation. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. In the Holy Scriptures, you learn the data, the information that's needed in order for you to be moved from one outside a relationship with God to within the family of God to be saved. That comes through the Holy Scriptures, says, says Paul. So this is your first clue that the scriptures have been given for the purpose of change and radical change. For you to be moved from somebody who's not a child of God to being a child of God. Salvation. So is the Bible about change? Sure. Paul's life is about change. His own testimony. Then he says to Timothy, Timothy, the book that you have learned from infancy, from your mother and your grandmother, he tells us back in chapter 1. That that book from which you have learned is about change, beginning with the change that comes in salvation. But it doesn't stop at salvation. Contrary to what I said earlier that many people say, change is not necessary because I've prayed the prayer, I'm saved, I've punched my ticket, I'm going to heaven, I don't need to change. Contrary to that attitude, Paul continues writing. He says in verse 15, the Holy Scriptures make you, are able to make you wise for salvation. But then in verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So you have the Holy Scriptures as the vehicle that gives you the information that's necessary in order for you to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered, to have a re relationship with God. But 
the beginning of that relationship is not the end. But rather it's to continue. And that's what verse 16 is about. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Useful for what? Four things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And I've pointed out to you over the years that those things are written in a logical sequence. That you can't move one in front of the other and have it make sense. You can't be rebuked before you're first taught. You're not corrected before you're rebuked. These happen in a logical sequence. And this is the change sequence that's supposed to happen through a knowledge of the Scriptures. All Scripture has come from God and is useful to first of all teach us. To teach us about God, to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about God's standard, to teach us about our sin and how we fail to meet that standard. It teaches us. And having taught us, it rebukes us. That is, it convicts us. The word that's translated rebuke is the same word that is sometimes translated in your New Testament, convict. So having been taught, this is God's standard and this is what I'm supposed to be and this is what I am, then that should result in a conviction on my part. I'm convicted as a lawbreaker. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And if God puts a period there, then we are miserable. If God says the Scriptures are given to you in order to teach you what a crumb you are, (laughs) and then convict you, rebuke you for being such a crumb, period, then we're in big trouble. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. Because the third thing is correct. And that word correct means to cause to stand something which has previously fallen. So we're taught and we're convicted regularly by the Scriptures. But God doesn't leave us there. The Scriptures are also useful to cause us to stand. That is, it tells us what to do. It tells us what to do in order to stand again and move forward. So I alluded earlier to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 speaks of the characteristics of the old man, and it says put off the old man and put on the new man. And in Ephesians 4, it tells you the thoughts and the, the words and the behaviors of the one versus the other. That is, it's correcting, it's telling you what to do. And then training. And the word for training is the word for discipline. So this is not to be a one-time transaction, but rather these are to be disciplined training that results in habits of the life. And the scriptures give us the information for all of that. To teach us, to rebuke slash convict us, correct and train, discipline us for living. So is Christianity in the change business? Indeed. Christianity is all about the change business. And in order for you for me, for us to get what we're supposed to get out of Holy Scripture, we have to lose the idea that Christianity is a transaction and understand that Christianity is about transformation. Too many people have a transactional view of Christianity rather than a transformational view of Christianity. 
Christianity is not just about what you did once upon a time when you prayed the prayer and the transaction was done. As important and precious as that is, and when people join our church, we want to hear a testimony of salvation. We want to know that that has happened in the life of that person, that indeed that transaction has occurred. So I'm not suggesting that's unimportant. I'm simply saying it's only the beginning of a now eternal process, lifelong process, until we're glorified, of change in our lives. And you were saved for the purpose of sanctification. You were saved for the purpose of being continually set apart from the world and to the Lord. So when we're saved, we're called out of the world and God continues through His Spirit and His Word a process of setting us apart from the world. Change is to be a constant in the life of the Christian. Now, failure to see that is due to some of the things I've already said. Some people think it's unnecessary. Others think it's impossible. To say either of those is directly contrary to God's Word. It is absolutely necessary, vital, And it is absolutely possible, and God says as much. But failure to see the need then, assuming now we've corrected that thinking, if you ever had it in your mind, that it's not necessary or that it's impossible, then you may still fail to see the need for change due to your failure to see yourself and to see God and the world clearly. That is truly. And here's what I mean. You may say, yes, pastor, Change is necessary in the Christian life. And yes, pastor, change is possible in the Christian life. The good news is I don't have anything left to change. I'm glad I got a laugh out of that. Because it is foolishness, isn't it? But, dear friends, I am here to tell you, I am amazed at how many people live as if I ain't got nothing left to change. She's got some stuff to change. Lord knows that. Other people in the church have things to change. When he's preaching, I'm hoping that those people who need to change are hearing that. This is the kind of stuff that goes on. And, and we, when I say it that way, it's stark and it sounds so foolish because it is. But then when you have to live day in and day out in the workaday world and in the domestic world of your home, how does that play out? Who needs to change? And whose change are you worried about then? And, and I could not tell you how many times. I have people coming to me ostensibly for counsel to help them when in fact it turns out they're looking to let me know what a burden they have to deal with with whoever. And if you would just tell me how to deal with that, because this person needs to change. But we don't focus on ourselves. And when we don't focus on ourselves, we are guilty of what James chapter 1 says. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. I had them on the screen actually last week. But the person who hears the word but does not put it into practice, the person who hears the word but does not do it, is like a man or a woman who sees his or herself in the mirror, sees the changes that need to be made, 
but goes away unchanged. And that's what many, 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 many Christians do. You know, we want a church that preaches the word. We want a pastor that preaches the word. Pastor, keep preaching the word. Keep doing the right thing. Okay, you got a deal there. I'll do that. And let's make a deal as well, that every time the word of God is opened, we're ready to be changed. Every time. Now, she walked out, so I'm going to talk about her behind her back. Where'd, where'd, where'd mama go? She must be convicted about her need to change. I was, she was... Well, I, just, I was going to tell you a story about my dear wife. Um, just a godly, godly woman. And I've been able to see her for 31 years, a year dating and 30 married now. A godly woman. I thank God for Kim. And I see this godliness in her in a lot of ways. And one of them is there, we have been privileged to have people in our living room many times for counsel. And as I'm offering counsel to uh, someone, after it's over, invariably Kim comes and says, Oh, man, that was killing me. Because all the while I'm offering counsel to somebody who's come for it, she's listening to the Word of God being applied, and she's applying it to herself. Every time. I'm, I'm guilty of that. What you were saying, I do that, don't I? And I go, yeah, I got a whole list. No. <laughs> and and we, it's kind of a joke for us now sometimes. Because I know she's going to come after her, and she's going to say, and this is her tender heart, thank God. Now, I say this with her gone as, as an illustration of, here's a kind of heart that says, Lord, I want to change. And when I hear your word, if I hear it formally through preaching and teaching, if I hear it in a living room through counsel, if I'm just reading it on my own, whatever it is, I'm coming to it for the purpose of saying, Lord, reveal me and help me to change. And I'm asking you, friend, is that the case with you? Let me ask you, how many of us can say that we have changed? Or better yet, how many spouses would say, if you're married, that your husband wife has changed? And that you could point to and you could say, they were here and they were here. Now, many of you could, thank, thank the Lord, and you're in the process of that. But very, very many people could not. No, we're just in it and we're just going through it. And it's that burden that with that motif of Scripture that is apparently being dismissed by so many professing Christians who are not engaged actively in changing themselves, it's that burden that has prompted me to want to take a few weeks to go through what I call the story of your life. Now, why do I call it that, the story of your life? Because we're going to take a look at who we are biblically, in order to determine where it is we need to change. And that need for change starts at the beginning. It starts at the beginning of our own lives, but it really goes back to the beginning of, of creation. It goes back to God originally designing us to reflect Him back to Him as we were made in, in His image. So I want to start with that. I want to start at the beginning and start at the beginning of creation, but then I want us, over the next few weeks, to see how to start at the beginning of your life. 
to give you a template in order to analyze your own life to say, how did I start out and how did I get here? So where am I? Where am I supposed to be? And how did I get here? And give you a biblical grid through which to, to see that so that you can see what needs to be changed. But let me start not at the beginning of your life, but at the beginning of our lives, at the beginning of, of it all. So let me remind you of a few things from the opening chapters of the Bible. That originally God and man and the environment were all in harmony. Man was in harmony with his God and man was in harmony with his environment. And that's what you find in the opening chapters of the Bible. You have man in fellowship with God. You have man enjoying communion with God. He was made to do that. Now, how do, we, how do we know this? A few things. One, when God creates Adam of the dust of the ground, the Bible tells us then just right after that, he breathes the breath of life into, into Adam. Genesis 2 and verse 7. And then God begins to command Adam. He tells him what you're supposed to do. I've made you to do this. And Adam apparently just understands what God's saying. So here's God making a being, man, who was made to inherently understand and know and appreciate and follow the voice of his creator. Adam's created and God talks to him. And Adam knows his voice. And he obeys his voice initially. Well, how does he know his voice? How does he know who's talking? You guys have heard me say this before. Adam didn't have to go through any training. He didn't have to get language skills. He didn't have to have God verify who he, God, was. There you are, the first man. Who are you going to look to to go? Does anybody know where this guy came from? You're the first man and you are made to know the voice of your creator. Man and God are in harmony with one another. But not only are man and God in harmony with one another as we see through Adam understanding and, and, and communicating with God, but not just communicating, but communing with God. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, after they have sinned, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. You guys remember reading that? Well, that suggests that they know the sound. They know who we're talking about. That this was a, a regular custom for God to commune with the first man and the first woman. They knew the sound. So they hid themselves. So here they were. They were made for communication and communion with God. Man and God were in harmony with one another. But not only were man and God in harmony with one another, man, God, and, the, and their environment were in harmony with one another. And when I say the environment, yes, I mean the, the physical surroundings. But also the man and the woman made part of their environment. I mean, Adam made part of Eve's environment and Eve made uh, part of Adam's environment, right? Part of your environment that you live in includes not only your physical surroundings, but the people who are around you. And that was in harmony as well. And this is precisely what God intended for it to be. God, man, and their environment. Physical surroundings, but also people in harmony. And then sin enters. 
And God had said to them, you'll remember, of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden you may not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. You will die. And then you read that account. They, they eat of the tree, and they live for many years after that, physically. So if you don't understand what's meant by death, you could say, that's an error in the Bible. God said you're going to die. They didn't die. But in fact, death in the Bible means this, separation. When you read death in the Bible, it's separation. Physical death is a separation. It is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is a separation of the individual from God. And the Bible speaks of eternal death, that is, separation of the individual from God forever. Three kinds of death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. When they ate of the fruit, in that moment, they were separated from God, spiritually. So now the man who was in harmony with God, in harmony with his wife, and his wife with him, these two became estranged from God, estranged from one another, and estranged from their physical environment. All of that. And you see all of that in Genesis chapter 3. They're hiding from God. When we go through in a few weeks the opening chapters of Genesis, you'll have to endure me saying some of this again. But that's some of the saddest words you will read in the Bible. That man hid from his God. Humanity that was made for God and to be in harmony with God is now hiding from God. And then he's trying to deceive God. He's trying to make excuses to an all-knowing God and loving God. Adam, what have you done? The woman. So now he's not only hiding from God, he's estranged from his wife. And then his wife says, the serpent. And she brings it full circle. We're hiding from God. And the reason we're hiding from you, God, is because apparently your character is somewhat suspect. Because the serpent did this. And we all know who made the serpent. And so in, in one fell swoop, in the fall, all of that then happens. You have this death, this separation of man from God, of man from man, and man from his environment. And to picture that, to picture that separation, God says, you're going to be separated now physically from this place that I made you. You're going to be banished outside, outside the garden. Remember I said that the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible are these bookends. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, we're told that they are banished from the garden, that there, are, that there are cherubim that are set up at the entrance to the garden with flaming swords so that they can't enter again. But then it gives the explanation as to why they can't enter again. They can't enter again lest they eat of the tree of life. They're banished from the tree of life. Now, but in Revelation, in this bookend, in Revelation, guess what shows up again? The tree of life. And God says, come and eat of the tree of life freely. God has completed his restoration project when you come to the book of, of Revelation. But in the meantime, in his isolation, man no longer sees his life with reference to God. Humanity naturally, all people, me, you, all of us, come into this world and we do not see our lives 
with reference to God. We do not. We come into this world not seeing ourselves in the presence of God, coram Deo, but rather we have a limited view now of ourselves and of life. It's simply focused upon how do I get from one day to the next, from one week to the next, from one year to the next. No transcendent view of God and the God who I was made for and is in control. So without reference to God, everything becomes different. Pursuits and relationships are simply to get by and make ends meet without regard, as I say, to this transcendent view of God with whom we are to transact and deal every moment of every day. That's what we were made for. We were made for God, but we now live for ourselves. And we come into this world with that perspective. That it's me, it's me trying to make my way in this world, it's me trying to make my way in this world with other people who see themselves as me trying to make my way in this world, so now that's my environment. We come into this world with that perspective and we pursue it then, we pursue it for years before we come to Christ, if in fact we've come to Christ, we pursue it for years. And meanwhile, we're affected by all of that. I'm affected by what I naturally am, separated from God. And by what I naturally have become by the influence of other people who are separated from God. I've changed from what I was originally created to be. Others are not what they were originally created to be, and I hang out with them, and I'm influenced by them, and them by me. And all of this crust, all of this garbage, all of this baggage attaches to me day after day and year after year. And I bring it in then to every relationship that I engage in. If I get married, I'm bringing that stuff in. I get married, I'm bringing my family into that marriage with me. Oh, man. Because remember what my family is. And when I say my family, I mean just any family. Remember what that is. That's a bunch of sinful people who are all been rubbing off on you for all of those years and you're carrying all that junk around with you. And then you come into a relationship with somebody else and they've got their junk. So here's what marriage is. Two people with a bunch of junk. But here's the cool thing. My junk is better than yours. I mean, look, we all have junk, but you, oh man, your family is... So here's what we say. How many times have you used this phrase or heard this phrase? He or she is a piece of, they're a piece of work. Now what do we mean by that? Man, they've accrued a bunch of junk. Once you get to know them, you're like, good luck with all of that. And most of us think that other people's stuff is worse than ours. I'll give one last illustration and I'm done for today. 
And I give these marriage illustrations a lot because Paul Tripp is right that the home is the crucible. Whether you're married or not, the home is the crucible that God uses to expose us. It happens most clearly in the context of domestic living because that's where life happens. And it ain't here, guys. <laughs> it's not here on Sunday morning. You guys all look great. You know, most of you showed up on time. You all, had a, you all said the right stuff. Nobody nodded off. If you nodded off, you can confess. But you're, you all did the right things. You all look good. We all look good, don't we? It's Monday through Saturday, not Sunday, that determines where we are. My wife and I both grew up in Christian homes. And we thank God, we thank God that we learned the gospel from our parents. And Kim was saved as a young girl and I was saved at 19. But I grew up in an environment where my uh, dad, a pastor who died when I was 11, but then my mom nurtured me and loved me. And I look back on that and I compare and contrast that to the upbringings that so many people have and perhaps some of your upbringings and I just thank God. And in God in his providence brings us together at age 22. But these are two people bringing junk. Despite the fact that they come from Christian homes. Both of them are. And one of the things that we, by God's grace, learned to do early on in our marriage was to lay out the junk that we've acquired, each of us. Even from very good homes. And... She helped me see stuff that I had and things that I did that I learned to do along the way. And I did the same with her. And neither of us had the right to say, hey, this is what you bought into, baby. This is the package. No. If that stuff does not conform to the image of Jesus, then that's stuff that needs to be changed. And so in our marriage relationship, we have seen it as a discipleship relationship. Relationship is for discipleship. Whatever relationship it is. If it's between Christians, relationship is for discipleship. And so she's had to help me change, and I've had to help her change. But change we must, even from blessed and good backgrounds. And every person here, change you must. If you're going to change, you've got to understand the story of your life. The story of your life begins in Genesis, as it does for me. And then the story of your life has the particulars that you have brought to it to the point you are at now. Over the next few weeks, we want to try to develop a way to look at that, to see that through a biblical lens so that you can change into the image of Jesus. Let's ask him to help us and go with us this week. Father, we thank you again for the blessedness of this Lord's Day and the opportunity to be here with your people. And Lord, to think about this topic and the absolute necessity that we change. Lord, I pray that these friends and brothers and sisters will be attuned to that that I and that we together will see the, the need to be conformed to the image of Jesus, will accept the fact, not just theoretically, but in fact, that we are not 
and that we desire to be. And that painful though the look in the mirror may be, it's a necessary look so that we can see where we are and know what needs to change. So I pray that you would cause each of us here to desire that. And then desiring that, to put into practice the things that we will look at over the next few weeks. And Lord, use this then to help us to be, each of us, in a process of lifelong change in every area of service, in every area of relationship to which you call us. And go with us, we ask you this week. Help us to ponder these things. Help us to think about already what we may know needs to change. Help us to have the humility to perhaps ask someone who knows us, what do you see that I need to change? And as a result of that, may we be able to move forward for you even this coming week. We ask you, Lord, to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.